Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains, mental health, and disabilities, and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples, and we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same. I'm so excited to have an old and dear friend on the podcast. A counselor and advocate, Mark Power works with former inmates to help them reintegrate into life after prison. In Mark's words, the slippery slope around the company we keep, or worse, relational disconnection, re-emerges in most second chancers' stories. The pull to reunite with old associates, friends, and even criminal families is often the path of least resistance. Today, we discuss a wide range of topics around justice, reintegration, and forgiveness. This includes conversations around the mental health implications of prison and the impact incarceration has on both those locked away and the families they leave behind. We also discuss programs such as Blind Spotting and Orange is the New Black, amongst others. Mark's dream is that we start building reintegration programs that are so effective that recidivism radically goes down and we can start closing prisons. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. A content warning for our listeners as we talk about crime and suicide in today's episode. And now, Mark. Mark Power. I have to always say Mark Power. I can never just say Mark because your name is so awesome. Mark Powell, welcome to Brains. Thank you. I'm so flattered you asked. And for what it's worth, I have had invitations to speak on other podcasts, but this is the first one that I've accepted. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I tread cautiously when I publicly talk about matters of justice and reintegration and forgiveness. So y'all are a safe place for me to begin to talk about some of these things. Well, that's really great to hear. Thank you. Thank you for for trusting us in this process. To start things off, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Who am I? Isn't that the the question we're all trying to find out? (laughs) Yes. I'll give you the simple answer. Mark Power is loved. Just as Sarah and Heather are loved. And I, what I do is I, I remind people of the truth and the fact that they are loved. I know it sounds simple, but we are increasingly entering a chapter of uh, history where people believe they are unlovable and therefore they are hopeless. So what I've done, I'll, I'll give you the Coles notes on some career stuff. Um, I started out as a counselor. Um, many years ago in the uh, late 1990s, uh, working in addictions, working mostly with young people and their families. I think it was after my mother passing away. Suddenly, I couldn't give what I didn't have, and that is love. But luckily, I you know, stumbled into television and became a bit of a pseudo-journalist for a while. And I think what made me a half-decent journalist is what made me a half-decent counselor was asking questions and being mm-hmm. curious and being genuinely interested in ju- not just, you know, getting to know people, but understanding them. Uh, you might remember my overly long interviews. That would be 90 minutes, but only probably need that we use one minute of. Yes, <laughs> which is great. You got to the heart of whatever story you're trying to share. And that's what I've connected with working with you. Yeah. And I think people felt heard and understood. And uh, I think it helped me parlay you know, my career into, well, one of a documentarian for, you know, almost another decade. And as I grew and healed and, you know, was loved, I got married, uh, had a child, a couple of dogs, I had the capacity again to help, you know, to be a friend, to be of service to people. And that's really where my, my heart lies is serving people, not fixing people, but helping them overcome these limiting narratives that we install in our operating systems from trauma, from our childhood wounds, 
and to help them transform that into something new when we look back over our you know history it doesn't seem like it right away mm-hmm. but 10 years 20 years from when the worst day of your life happened there's a lot of perspective you can gather one of the reasons we do this podcast is how we see things in film and television is how we think they really are and so you gave us a lot of great examples of films and even news stories and shows that show a part of being either incarcerated or coming out of jail, the experience that people have. One of the ones you sent us a news story, the father-daughter dance, and it's also a, a, a short talk, I believe. And a TED talk too. And a TED talk, like it's yeah. <laughs> very impactful. And it details the idea that, of like, what does it mean when a parent does time and how does it affect the families? So what is the impact on families and inmates during incarceration and the post-release? I know it's a very big question, but, um, mm. and how did the, how did, these this doc and then there's even the tv series blind spotting um where it's about the family around somebody that's incarcerated yeah what's the impact i'll start with a little story like a few years ago i've kind of led and participated in a, a few different fundraisers so we used to make these kind of steampunk style lamps out of iron pipe that was thrown away and we would you know make it into the base of a lamp it was always a metaphor for how we can take something broken and reinvent it into something new just as we do with our own stories one of the years we did have an excess of money. We usually use that money just to be able to, you know, maybe take the men or women out for dinner or to go bowling, just some leisure activities. Uh, that's what we do on the Saturday nights when we hang out. But when I asked the men, we have this extra, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. What would you want to do with it? You want to buy season tickets for hockey games? <laughs> you can. That was an option. Or do you want to put it towards money for, you know, your children's education? Uh, or do you want to donate it? And unanimously, the men had said, we want to give the money to women's shelters. And, you know, I, I thought it was sort of misplaced guilt at first. And maybe there's a little bit of that. But when I asked why, a number of the men said, we are raised by a single mother, and they need all the support that they can get. A couple other guys said, yes, when we went to prison, we left our wives and children high and dry with nothing. They were the breadwinner. They were the primary income. And so, yeah, some of those families ended up having to go to shelters to survive. Uh, on the other side of that, I can talk about the women a little bit because we made these projects with the women's reintegration group as well. Uh, when I asked them where they wanted to donate the excess of funds, they said an organization here in Edmonton called Little Warriors. Mm-hmm. And Little Warriors helps children who uh, have been sexually abused, uh, and traumatized. If Little Warriors had existed when they were a child, mm-hmm. they would probably not be incarcerated today. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's the stuff, you know, that's the narrative I want people to hear. Mm-hmm. That these aren't monsters, you know, in cages. That these are like living, thinking, conscientious, loving human beings. When you ask the question, you know, how does it affect a family when a, a member, more often than not, a father mm-hmm. or a son is absent. I would kind of liken it to a, whatever the sentence is, a 7, 10, 15 year sentence, a cloud that covers the sun mm-hmm. for that amount of time. And just what happens to the ecosystem without sunshine is things begin dying. And if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. And it just ripples out and kind of makes everything miserable for a while. You can say that, you know, a uh, alcoholic father does the same thing or an abusive father uh, casts a long shadow for a long time, Mm -hmm. but it's a devastating impact to families to have, whether that's a son or daughter or father or mother absent, they have stopped growing. Sometimes people have described it to me as a death without a funeral because they're just gone. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people don't want to tell their children where their father is or where their mother is. So it ends up being sometimes a a fabrication of the truth. I hope we can start to have more honest conversations that break some of the shame and stigma Mm -hmm. uh, that's associated with those who have been incarcerated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis used to say, we read to know we're not alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's the same with film is we watch and consume and curate films to remind people that they're not alone. 
uh, that the struggle is real and more often than not can be overcome. Mm -hmm. Blind spotting reminded me of the Hughes brothers and John Singleton films Mm -hmm. uh, and even Frank Lee's films that they actually refer to as the hood genre. Mm. So usually black or Latino uh, populations who are facing injustice somehow in their communities is, is the plot. It's funny because I don't know why it didn't hit me right away. The title, Blind Spotting, is acknowledging those blind spots we have when we mm-hmm. are interpreting the world mm-hmm. or refusing to see the big picture. And that's and the thing is, if we're all honest, we all have blind spots. We all have bias. Mm-hmm. We judge things. There are things that make us feel unsafe, uh, and therefore we avoid them. And, that, and that's okay. But I really started questioning, what are my own blind spots? Colin and Miles. Colin has just gotten out of prison and placed into a halfway house. I would say that was a, a nice halfway house compared to what I've seen because mm-hmm. he had his own bedroom. Mm. Uh, halfway houses I have been in have sometimes two or three guys stacked into a bedroom uh, more overcrowded than having your own cell while in prison Uh, sometimes prison seems preferable to some halfway houses but he you know reunites with his old pal Miles really his best friend and for all intents and purposes his brother his brother who gets him in who gets Colin into trouble sometimes for Colin Miles is his blind spot. On the surface, it's not, you might not think it's as deep (laughs) like I didn't at first, but there is a depth beneath the surface that speaks to brotherly love and loyalty and uh, abandonment Mm -hmm. and betrayal. All of these things are part of almost every relationship, you know? Yeah. It's just turned the hero's journey kind of on its head because Mm -hmm. you have this anti hero. Mm-hmm. who's going on the journey of redemption. And I think what's interesting is um, the TV series occurs six months after the film. So mm-hmm. they look at Miles gets incarcerated and leaves behind his partner of 12 years, Ashley, um, and his son. And then the they have to move in with Miles' mother and half-sister um, to make ends meet. So it becomes this thing of you see the her in-laws... And the relationship she has with them and then the absence of that one person in their life and how do they find ways to, I don't know, in some ways are covering over the cracks of that, but it's, it keeps coming back. Like they can't hide it and they all have different opinions of, of how to exist while they wait for him to come back into the family. And so I think just it reminded me of what you were saying about that shadow that goes across the family. This is created by the same people who created the film. They are wanting to continue to explore past that initial relationship between those two friends to now what is the bigger impact on the family that surrounds them. And so I just thought it was really interesting that they've created these like continuing narratives because it's so important to talk about. Yeah. And it speaks to the cyclical nature. I wanted to watch some of the TV series, but one of the headlines that I noticed is that blind spotting the TV series accomplishes what the film couldn't. Mm. You know, when we talk about those shadows, it's these narratives. There's the story that we author Mm -hmm. to make ourselves sometimes for Mm self-preservation. And then there's the actual story. There is something that we are blissfully ignorant of. It's sometimes that actual story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the movie, they have this, 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 this silly little metaphor of green juice that he buys, and it yeah. tastes awful. And then there's another scene where Miles orders a hamburger, but it ends up being a veggie burger. <laughs> at the end of the movie, you, because they kind of make fun of this green juice throughout the film, and at the end, Connor says, yeah, but it's good for you. Mm-hmm. It's just about finding ways to make the truth palatable. Mm. the real the actual story palatable because yeah. the truth is if we can accept the terms of reality it actually liberates us yeah. to be free and strong but it's it's a long road to hoe to unlearn everything we've been conditioned to mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. uh but but it is in like our undoing sometimes going to prison mm-hmm. where we finally have permission to fall apart mm. yeah and 
begin again. In my counseling practice, what I do is I help people get clear on what those limiting beliefs and stories and narratives that are keeping them stuck Mm -hmm. and maybe becoming aware of maybe some of the familiarity and safety they have in staying stuck. Yeah. But then also helping them become aware of this greater story that they might be missing out on, that they are missing out on by remaining stuck. I've been in chapters of my life where I've been stuck in my own prison, mm. right? Because of my own limiting beliefs. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm not qualified to do that. I'm, I'll am i never be able to, you know, make that money. Even for a few years, I chased money, mm-hmm. you know, until I realized I think I was becoming mentally ill, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So again, it's self-awareness. I think the other part is humility. Mm. Like just asking for help Mm. requires us to summon some courage. I have found that everybody wants to be a hero. Everybody wants to help somebody in need. And they're actually just waiting for the opportunity. So I just want to encourage people not to be shy to ask for help. I can identify with that for sure. Yeah. Um, it's not weak, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's it's actually it takes courage and strength. Lots of strength. Yeah. yeah. I had an opportunity when I lived in England. I w- was worked more in poetry, and I had an opportunity to go to what they classify a Class B prison. In um, it was in Bristol, and I was writing poetry with some of the men in there that would never leave prison. They would be there for life, and I heard some of the most beautiful poems because we had a chance just be people with each other. And for a moment, we got to just tell our own stories and hear the stories only that people wanted to share. And that's how we were. We're like, you come as you are and as you'd like to be, and we'll just be in this space together. And I think that was a really seminal moment for me, you know, like to to have that opportunity and to see a space much differently than what we believe those spaces to be. So, and, or the people to be too. Yeah. It is so transformative to spend time with people who the rest of the world is running away from or avoiding. Mm-hmm. And that when you get to know someone as a human being, uh, one-to-one or in a small group, it really destroys any bias or preconceived notions we might have. I'm just so heartened that you know very few people get to access these isolated places. And even if we just you know, because you can't go in there and take pictures uh, of anything. Uh, but I think the conversations we have around those experiences are are important. What led you to work with, I think you used the term second chance community, which I love. What led you to work with that community? I was working for the government of Canada, for the National Film Board. And I almost felt, found myself a little bit peopled out. I was on the phone a lot all day. And I went to our one of our local charities here, the Mustard Seed, and I asked if I could volunteer and just stock shelves in their food bank. I just wanted to do something mindless because I have a tendency to have ruminating thoughts and looping and just staying stuck and frustrated. The volunteer coordinator at the Mustard Seed at the time had said, brother, your resume is like amazing. We have this small cohort of men who we get together with on Saturday nights and we just get to know them as people. And maybe you should give that a shot. And if you, you know, still want to stock shelves, we're happy to have you stock shelves. So that was how I kind of got my foot in the door with kind of getting into the second chance community. Working with those who are oppressed or incarcerated is baked into my DNA. Uh, I consider myself to be the comeback kid I've overcome a lot of suffering and adversity. But even deeper than that, when I look at my father's father, my grandfather, you know, he came back from war. He was put in prison because he's a morphine addict and he hung himself in prison. I didn't find that out till just two years ago. Oh, wow. But it's it's like these echoes primally are, you know, reaching out to us. And I'm living a story where I'm actually restoring his story a little bit. I'm kind of providing the support that maybe he required. And so this is all kind of subconscious stuff, but I'm rescuing him too. I'm honoring him. If we examine the muses that pique our curiosity, we should probably chase it because it, it may be something deeper 
in our lineage and our story mm. that is calling to be helped or restored, healed. Just need to take a second and breathe that in. <laughs> this is a very po- you're being very poetic and like no like really it's just I don't know it's really inspiring. So thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> One of the other television shows that you mentioned was um, Orange Is the New Black, and I know that it showed a variety of situations that led to incarceration. So. And then one of the compounding issues sometimes can be mental health of people going into the system. So I know that we talked. You talked about um, Susan uh, Crazy Eyes Warren, and that she had mental health issues. So how is the justice system dealing with cases that may benefit from, let's say, therapy and support versus incarceration? Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> so I'll say that you know sometimes it's a little bit of luck mm. for people. Because they do do forensic assessments, like pre-sentencing mm-hmm. assessments. But I will say, even the best intentioned psychologists bring in their own blind spots, biases. And if somebody has been found guilty and you're doing a pre-sentencing assessment and you're carrying around maybe an old wound of a sibling or a family member who had been assaulted, say, I don't know, sometimes the assessment of the mental illness gets lost in that bias. I have worked with men and women who I questioned if they were even fit to stand trial, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, only because it ended up condemning them. Let's say somebody with a learning disability. Like one of the things I have to do is take, you know, larger abstract ideas and compartmentalize them into smaller, again, palatable, digestible bits. Because I also am seeking uh, the truth and the facts. So I might just go, uh, true or false, life was lousy for you as a kid. Mm. You know, true. But if you just put somebody on the stand in court and say, tell us what happened. It's just too big. Yeah, yeah. It's an overwhelming, sweeping question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and sometimes depends on the lawyer or prosecutor. Deliberately so. That's how you how you win cases is by making somebody feel ashamed for not knowing the answers, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm just saying it, the justice system system isn't always fair. I think it tries, it endeavors to be. I know that the assessments that are in place should, but sometimes people's minds are made up mm-hmm. <laughs> about, and it doesn't matter. And so. Yes, there are people who fall through the cracks that probably need a hospital more than they need a prison. Yeah. And it's not to excuse any crime or uh, undermine what victims have experienced because it's a lose-lose situation. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, totally. And when you look at Suzanne Crazy Eyes, you know, scenario of what led to her incarceration is is that question she's always chasing because she has this fear of rejection and abandonment, right? Mm-hmm. That ruminating question that you could identify as OCD, maybe a dash of autistic traits in there. But when you're chasing that question, so she's not even aware, she's not hearing it, but it's there in the subconscious. Am I wanted? Mm-hmm. Am I wanted? Mm-hmm. Am I wanted? Am I wanted? She will, she glops on to this child who enjoys spending time with her. Mm-hmm. I think she's fun. But then it leads to tragedy with him falling off a balcony. We sometimes, in our desperation to make the answer to these questions, like, am I wanted a yes? Because we can't stand it being a no, Mm -hmm. right? We do desperate, careless things. And sometimes I'll say one of the big questions is, am I safe? Mm -hmm. Anybody who's been traumatized or hurt as a child, that is their question. As they go into adulthood, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And... Yeah, we're so desperate to make that a yes. Sometimes the wrong people (laughs) will Mm. love and accept you to make it a yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it becomes sometimes an exploitive relationship because people are so thirsty for the water that they'll drink the sand, you know, (laughs) because they don't know. (laughs) They don't know the difference. One thing during COVID, because of social distancing and masking, I know that there are a lot of counseling and appointments with psychologists that were suspended. Mm -hmm. There is increased isolation and human beings are social creatures. Even if that's the one outlet 
that point of contact. It's important. My intention is not to oversimplify matters, but during COVID, when I felt like I was in my, well, my house became my prison. <laughs> As know? for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I asked myself, what does the world need in such a time as this? And the answer is pretty simple. A friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll say a friend is sometimes better than, you know, a counselor or a therapist. Yeah. Because especially in prison, if somebody has been, whatever, assaulted, I've worked with a lot of men that have said, I can't even tell the prison psychologist this because they have a duty to report and everybody will know I ratted somebody out. Then I'm going to have a, a target on my back. And that's really what it would just, how do you make a bad situation worse? Mm-hmm. You know, again, when things unfold that way, we end up not being able to trust even our therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when somebody shares with me something traumatic that's happened, it's, it's sacred ground mm-hmm. uh, for me. Yeah. And even if they tell me I want to kill somebody or I want to kill myself, you could say that out of some training, your reflexes to report. But usually the three words that will save a life is tell me more. Mm-hmm. Because it's really easy to get self-righteous and start lecturing somebody on right from wrong mm-hmm. uh, or how they're going to get. But when they say, tell me more, sometimes the reason why they want to enact violence comes from a place where it might be rightfully so. They're, they're hurt. They've been hurt real bad. It doesn't make enacting violence okay. But I find that be, somebody being able to share it and saying, I'm sorry that happened to you, reduces crime by 50%. Yeah, that brings me to a question. This shows us that, you know, one of your approaches to to restoring the mental and emotional wellness of former inmates, having a place that's safe to listen. So how do you do do that? And how does your work help uh, reduce reoffending? You know, I I will truly say that I spend a couple nights every two weeks, I usually get together with a group of fellas. And, you know, I, mean, these are, I don't refer to them as the reintegration group. They're, they're my Saturday night group. Mm-hmm. They're my men's group, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that I'm helping them, but I get more out of, you know, spending time with them. Some of them uh, I would call very dear friends. It's just from all walks of life. But I think what we do well is... If somebody who has been, for all intents and purposes, been banished from society, I'm the dog. Like, if everybody could be as happy to see each other as our dogs are (laughs) when we come home, wouldn't the world be a better place? Yes. And so there is just so much, like, honestly, it's all hugs. I know what you would think are hyper-masculine men that are kind of tatted up and, you know, jacked. Uh, They are... So sometimes just the biggest sweethearts and there's something real honest that happens in those rooms because everybody is kind of there for a similar reason. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that they have done wrong, yeah. that they are broken. And when you get that kind of honesty in the room, the world is, you know, the honesty pool is really shallow. There's just not enough people in it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's easy to, it's easier to stand out. Yeah. Here's what happens in in a meeting. We go around the circle and we share, we check in something good about our week, something not so great about our week. Mm -hmm. And what happens is by, you know, me listening to these men's stories, they feel heard and understood, Mm. right? And then I benefit because I have now been of service Mm -hmm. to somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to even call it group therapy. We're just checking in. Just like me texting a friend saying, hey, I haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. How are you doing? And I think it's that the fact that somebody, if somebody's not there on Saturday night, we worry. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We worry that they could be dead or they could have relapsed or what, whatever it might be. But I think the fact that there are people who want to spend time with them and not just want to. Like, I, I enjoy spending time with them as people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the, I think the whole, you know, it, it shouldn't be a secret, but we prefer to spend time with people who like us. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to practice is a level of genuine authenticity mm-hmm. where I go, I'm not getting the flavor of your soda 
but I'm trying. Sometimes being genuine, authentic means being a little bit socially awkward going, ah, I can't quite figure you out. Mm. And if I, and you know, I'm not going to let anybody take digs at me. I'm, I'm, I love self, self-deprecating humor, but if somebody's just going to insult me, I'm not going to let them mm. hurt me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's boundaries too that have to be put in place. But often when you've been isolated, well, number one, if you're isolated with, with people who have antisocial personality disorder, it stands to reason you're going to be a contagion that you start adopting. And so this group is part of unlearning that, right? And the other part of it is it's not an excuse. We always have to think about the victims. But most offenders, especially offenders of certain crime, have been victims themselves. And there's something called trauma reenactment that I kind of see perpetuated. Mm. It's only because I'm looking at the long game of the story, mm-hmm. right? So for me to truly understand somebody, I have to know their backstory. Yeah. Like the villain in a movie didn't just become the villain. There's a backstory to them maybe being victimized themselves. And you know, there's that old saying, hurt people hurt people. So what I believe is that trauma not transformed, like trauma that is unprocessed, is transmitted. Trauma not transformed is transmitted. Mm-hmm. And so when I say, I'm not getting the flavor of your soda, I'm saying, I'm uncomfortable. Mm. I'm, I don't know how to respond to you. Mm. I would like to, but then they may clarify, right? It's just being able to sit in the discomfort and acknowledge it. And sometimes they acknowledge it to the person in a way that is somehow kind and diplomatic going like i'm really trying to understand where you're coming but it's, it's not computing it's like microsoft windows talking to apple you know <laughs> yes yeah. they don't talk <laughs> very <Yeah>. well <laughs> love is spelled t-i-m-e it's whoever puts in the time either which way you're going to put in time what they're doing is serving time but you can put on the time on the front end in a preemptive way mm-hmm or you can put it on the back end in crisis. Mm, mm-hmm. But I and I way would rather put in the time on the front end in a way that's preemptive and proactive than I would visiting somebody in prison. I'd rather see them out in the community on a Saturday night than on the other side of it. And that's where I think if you ask a lot of the fellas what helped, it was that they had friends in the community who stood beside them during their parole hearings right? Endorsed them yeah, and said they're honest, trustworthy, and reliable. They show up week after week, even because this is a voluntary program. They don't have to. Mm-hmm. Guys that have been out long out of prison, many, many, many years continue to come back. Mm. And it's because it's like family. I would love to track the data on it. Because my dream is that, you know, we start building reintegration programs that are so effective that recidivism goes down to such an extent that we start closing prisons. Oh, yeah. That would be amazing. The stuff that you shared too, like the do- there's a documentary you shared where they said they're comparing Norway to the U.S. And they're like 80% of prisoners in the U.S. that are released are re-arrested within five years, while in Norway that believe more in re- rehabilitation versus kind of revenge, 20%. Yeah. So, then, so, so like, some of the numbers are out there. <laughs> yeah. We just have to do it. Yeah. Just on a general basis, yeah. that idea that different approaches have great impact. What have you seen as the biggest mental health impact on those who are incarcerated? And then how does it change post-release? Pre-incarceration, often there is a already a malfunction that's happened, maybe starting in childhood. So they're already going in with this maybe lack of attention to detail and impulsivity. Uh, what I see set in is... Depression, anxiety, rightfully so. Another strange thing that I believe happens is insomnia. Because when you don't get natural sunlight, it can just mess with your your circadian rhythm. Um, and you don't have a, if you don't have a good sleep, you don't have a good day. And like I said, antisocial personality disorder as a contagion, we become the sum of the you know people we spend t- the most time with. And so, if they had any antisocial personality go- or disorder going in. You could say that it's exacerbated by overexposure, you know, and I've also seen people come out with post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of the things that they have witnessed and that they've seen in prison, the inhumanity, 
that they've witnessed, the indignity that they've experienced, uh, you know, leaves them shell-shocked and sometimes helpless. Because for us, in, you know, in the real world, we're making hundreds, if not thousands of decisions a day. And like that part of our brain and our heart is a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. Like you get good at making decisions. I never even thought about that. Wow. Yeah. And when you're told what to wear, when to eat, what to eat, you don't even get, you don't have a choice in these things, right? You can just become dull, brain fog. There's just a malaise that sits in and you're kind of on autopilot or whatever. But I think that getting good at making small choices, do you want peas or carrots, French fries or mashed potatoes? Those little micro uh, decisions add up to big gains. And so, you know, part of that reintegration is providing choice. If we go back to that question of Kath's mental health, you know, should have that time been put in on the front end with a mental health therapist or a counselor, the time wouldn't be putting getting put in on this back end. And so, I don't know, it's, uh, I'm not big on the labels. I don't enjoy the labels. I think there are some organic diagnoses that uh, are entirely legitimate. But Yes, my label comes down to it comes down to somebody being hurt or they are hurting. And so acknowledging that there is suffering at play, you need to ease that suffering in order to quiet down that amygdala for somebody to feel safe. And so, like I said, a lot of people's questions, am I safe? Am I safe? So we make that a statement. I am safe. We make it true, right? You are safe with me. You are safe here. That's step one. Because the question people are asking themselves is, what happened or how did I lose love and connection? And then they're asking themselves, what can I do about it? You're asking these yourself these questions intrinsically, but sometimes that's where a counselor comes in to make it tangible. Just like Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black, she's trying to answer that question through living. But I can watch the behavior and say, this is the question that it a character or a person is living. That's the motivation and driving force. So what I'm saying is you need to get under the hood. (laughs) (laughs) People are so busy pretending to have it together Mm -hmm. that they're just, you know, lying. Really? Yeah. That's what we're doing when we're pretending to know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're pretending that we're sane or pretending that we're okay. We need places where it's okay not to be okay, mm-hmm. right? And you, th- you would think a hospital or prison would be those places, but if you're upset, you are restrained mm-hmm. and put into solitary confinement where, again, somebody just said, tell me what's going on, or let's step into the other room to get, you know? Yep. Yeah. Like, it seems that we've lost this piece of de-escalation, and we go to this reflex knee-jerk of f- forcible restraint Mm -hmm. yeah or asserting authority like one of the jokes i kind of make (laughs) it's just because i've observed it i've picked guys up from a halfway house or a prison and the staff will go you behave yourself and be like a good boy and and as if the guard is going so i can act like a man (laughs) by telling you what to do right and it's just like it's that talking down to them Mm. but here's the thing that as a counselor that i have to resist is I have to let the man figure it out for himself Mm. right and say that's not nice because even saying that to a guard might land you in you know losing privileges or being labeled as obstinate Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because believe me there's always there's been many times I want to advocate but I know it would make a situation worse Mm -hmm. so you know that little term walk in the line that's what they are doing but we as friends have to be aware that that is what they're doing. Right. That must be hard, though, for a hard balance of being in a space where you are have no no choices and no control to a space where you still have to exist with, in some ways, no choices, no control, but also lots of choices. And so, like, when you say walking that line, that's what it makes me feel like. And I'm sure that is a really difficult place to be in many capacities, like, including mentally difficult. Yeah, like the enforcement becomes different mm. because sometimes if a fella has a dirty piss test, you could get him sent straight back to prison. But sometimes it's just to make an example out of somebody to send a message to the rest of them. I don't want to say that this is commonplace, but it's pretty clear that 
there are frameworks where you will be made an example of in order to get compliance from everybody else. Right. So being over punishing one makes the rest of the herd quieter. It's like all these like unspoken rules that you also have to play by when you're released as well. Or like maybe they're spoken. I feel like the the way you're describing it, it's like this sense of you're always on guard. You always have to be like that. Getting that trust back is probably really challenging. Yeah. Let me try to give you like a little picture of like what it's like to reintegrate, I guess. This is only the observer in me watching the struggle. And there's different ways people carry it depending on the crime. You know, I've worked with former sex offenders who have had their faces plastered all over the internet and newspapers. I've been out for coffee with one where people grab their phones and start recording them and throwing coffee at them. And I understand the outrage. People are angry and scared. That's what happens when people are angry and scared. And so what happens is you kind of push the person back into the shadows where they self-isolate. And our worst decisions are always made when we are by ourselves for too long. So that's what happens when we publicly shame people. We force them to hide. But I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago, and he was coming out of a halfway house. And he had applied for an apartment, a nice upgrade. He'd been working while he was in the halfway house. He'd become assistant manager of his workplace. And he had put in an application to rent an apartment. And the landlord called and said, are you the same, let's call him Joe Smith, that mm. uh, was in the newspapers? Yeah. And he said, yeah, that was me, but I want you to know it's it's all ancient history. They said, we'll get back to you. They got back to him and said, we can't rent to you. He calls the landlord back and he said, there is what was in the newspaper and that was the worst day of my life, but I am not the worst day of my life. I'm not the worst decision I ever made. Mm. And I think if you got to know me, you would understand that I'd actually be a benefit to your community. I'd be helpful. And, you know, what do you say? I can come meet you. And they accepted the invitation. They met him. And then they gave him the apartment. Wow. Right? Yeah. But it is that taking of personal responsibility going, I'm not going to remain ashamed. I'm going to show them who I really yeah. am. Because mm. if I go by the narrative that was printed in the newspaper, that is only just a little piece of a much bigger story. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where context matters. And I think he kind of went into a meeting going, you can ask me anything. And then they knew that he was an honest man. Mm-hmm. So I encourage people who are struggling to reintegrate because it's a risk. And sometimes you will be judged on your honesty. But sometimes it's like a breath of fresh air in, a, again, a world that is sometimes very dishonest and you don't know who to believe. You know, some people can't believe the media, the government. Sometimes because of these narratives, we can't believe ourselves. One of the exercises I'll do uh, with clients is after we have a foundation of trust and safety established, I sometimes would just invite them to close their eyes and, you know, unlearn some things. It's not hypnosis or anything, you know, new agey, but I'll just say, can you just say out loud, I am loved and I am capable of loving. Mm. I am loved and I am capable of loving. And sometimes they'll have their hand on their heart because that's the part that hurts. And you'll see them choke on those words. They can't believe it. They won't believe it. It's because it's just been conditioned out of them that you are unlovable. You are, it's something I've dubbed lost cause syndrome. When you believe that a broken past means a broken future and you're stuck in that narrative, you believe yourself to be a lost cause that not even worth wasting time trying to help me. I'm beyond help. And that's, that beyond help is, it goes past believing you're unlovable. You actually believe you're hopeless. And without hope, you got nothing. Almost every client or every friend that I asked as a participant in a little exercise just can't let those words escape. They are choking on those. It would be, a, in their mind, it would be a lie, right? But it believing you are unlovable and beyond hope is the lie that you've baked into your narrative. But if we invest the time and, you know, the emotional safety, 
we can help people uh, unlearn that lie. Mm. So I don't know. I'm in the business of saving lives and it doesn't mean talking people off the bridge, but I'm saying if I do, if I, in the reintegration world, if I'm helping with some preemptive work on the front end, it's saving lives. There are lots of people who are in a psych ward a couple days prior to committing their crime. This is the thing, whether it's a prisoner psych ward, sometimes people pretend to be better in order to get unlocked, to be free. So if we make these places just a somewhat therapeutic, it's well worth the investment. We just want to bring it back to the idea of film and television. And I know that there's some great examples of that you gave us of things that felt true in some way. But what would you love to see shown more on film and television that would be reflective of these experiences of re- of prison and reintegration? One thing that I would like to see is, you know, I practice something called restorative justice. And that's where an, an offender and a victim can come together. And I'll give you an example of that. I have a friend, Jim, when he was on the streets and he was a heavy drug user, he broke into the home of a couple of senior citizens. And while he was in prison, he actually, I think, had the, I don't know, conscientiousness to read the victim impact statement. And the letter, it said, it just seems senseless. We don't know, did somebody stake out our house and watch us for when we leave? Or was somebody angry at us and we're trying to get back at us? Jim took that and went, I don't want them to be scared. Like, that's the last thing. It was, because the truth, it was a, just check and unlock doors, right? And, and they found one. But in facilitating that session and watching Jim give this couple this peace of mind that they aren't being watched and that there's nothing malicious or anything for them to look over their shoulder about, they became friends. Like they go for coffee together wow. now. And I'm just saying like, it's really transformational. And this is the arc of every great story. Unlikely friendships overcoming adversity. Mm-hmm. Right, Woody and Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story, you know, Red and Andy from Shawshank Redemption. And so when you had mentioned being able to go into this, you know, prison in England, Mm -hmm. that is, again, a willingness to soften maybe whatever preconceived notions you might have and dare to be friends with somebody who is unlikely. This restorative piece is just so important. And it doesn't, like in our justice system, it doesn't reduce any time off anybody's sentence, right? Mm-hmm. The the victims have to be willing to participate in that process. Mm-hmm. But if the offender has read a victim impact statement and said, the last thing I ever wanted somebody to be was scared, you know, or traumatized. The victim can know that they can go into a space where they can be seen and heard and say, this really hurt me. Mm-hmm. And an offender can say, genuinely say i'm sorry mm-hmm. because they have nothing to gain because there's no time cut yeah, off yeah. for doing so right yeah but in indigenous cultures you know restorative justice is part and parcel with how communities yeah. work mm-hmm. it's part of the reintegration process is to acknowledge the harm that you've caused provide some peace of mind that it's not going to happen again yeah. yeah and i found myself in the cataclysm of events where I had a patient when I was working in healthcare who was killed by a drunk driver. So I spent a lot of time supporting, consoling the parents. And of course, fast forward a few years, the man who was behind the wheel of the car is now in my Saturday night group. And I, and I didn't know if I should ever say anything to either party. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time with the man who was behind the wheel, taking him home to see his family at Christmas and seeing what these children and wife had lost too. Again, it's a lose-lose situation. Everybody loses. Yeah. On the side for the victim, the parents actually took it all the way to parliament to have laws changed. Wow. Part of my role was just, if this is what's going to bring you peace, like I want to help you. My job's really easy. You tell me what you want. If it's in your best interest to help you get it. Yeah. Right. But it's just, it was such an honor to be at the cataclysm of of tragedy. Because I don't know, holding space for both parties. I hope one day there's some restoration. Yeah. The loss of a child runs deep. 
in my head, I've already been authoring a narrative, mm-hmm. but it's that kind of narrative that is the manifestation narrative, yeah, right? This manifestation of forgiveness, because I don't want to see the parents holding on to resentment and bitterness. I don't want them to hurt unnecessarily because they've already been hurt unnecessarily. And I can say that for the fellow who is buying the will, I've come to believe he's an actual transformed man. Yeah. He's, I've learned so much from him. I really try to interrogate my own bias, right? Going, is, is this guy just blowing smoke or is he legit? But when I see him with his family, it's real. Yeah. We don't often get to see that part of the narrative very often. Like in terms of stories, a lot of storytelling is more, I think, set. We see things in prison. We sometimes see a little bit of afterwards, like we were talking about with blind spotting. But then, yeah, you don't get to see that piece of those unlikely pairings, those people coming together and having a moment um, in a safe space. So other things I'd like to see is uh, I'd like to see us stop being soft on some of the language. I'll call it segregation. No, it's solitary confinement, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, and it's just like, it's like the word misinformation. You're saying, you're saying somebody's lying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. lying, right? Yeah. And it's not to be brutal about anything, but we're sugarcoating things to make it palatable for the public. But it's not necessarily honest. It's just wordplay and, you know, makes it maybe makes us feel a little bit better about the crimes against humanity that are done. Mm. Yeah. I haven't really seen any meaningful depiction of a Canadian prison. Mm. I would Mm. like to see some depiction of a, you know, we have uh, institutions for largely indigenous men. I'll tell you when I used, I worked up in Nunavut for a while and there's a medium security prison up in Nunavut. I thought it would be the great, a great premise for a escape movie. (laughs) Because <laughs> it's cold, <laughs> yeah, and and dark, and it would be very difficult to escape. Uh, but here's the funny thing: I could go up to the fence, and I could trade cigarettes for like a, a soapstone carving that they had made in the prison. And I'm just saying that this artwork that people are making amidst their suffering is mm-hmm. really beautiful. Some people want to call it art therapy, but it was more than about just doing an art project. It was about channeling it into making sense out of the madness so that is i think part of the secret sauce of restoration i like that a lot um on that note we're gonna ask you where can people find out more about you maybe about your counseling service that you have you can go at lovewell yeg at lovewell yeg uh that's the instagram and facebook connections Mm -hmm. uh you can also check out my website lovewell.ca it's love-well.ca and yeah you can find out about some workshops that i'll be holding and uh if you want to just come and uh, have some friendship therapy i'd be happy to see you i'll be the dog oh mark (laughs) it's so great to be able to connect like this you know i've known you for many many years and i've seen you evolve from producer filmmaker NFB worker, like, and you're always connecting. One of the, I'm just going to have one little small anecdote. The biggest thing, Mark has really helped me stretch my career. And it is from Mark's recommendations. I have been able to be uh, very successful because he has referred me to a lot of filmmakers that I continue to work with today. And uh, I don't know if I'd be here if it wasn't for Mark's, um, just his friendship and his love. <laughs> so thank you, Mark. Full circle. Uh, I really love you, Sarah. <laughs> you're, you're a beautiful human being and easy to endorse. Aw, thank you, know? you. Thank you. So, And you made me look good. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, as an editor. Those were, those were good years of growth for me. Like I was getting a different kind of confidence. Anyways, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It was such an honor to have Mark agree to come on the podcast. I didn't realize that he'd been asked to be on other programs and hasn't been ready to, to speak yet. And I think he does such important work. And yeah. I'm so, so, so glad that he was able to sit with us. And mm-hmm. ugh, some of the, I got to he's so poetic in the way he speaks. And it was just very impactful. I uh, do the story editing. Sarah does the editing, the hard work of editing. And I do the story <laughs> editing. So I listen to it and like, uh, you know, 
move things around. And uh, I kept wanting to cry <laughs> the entire time I listened to it. So I hope our listeners are doing okay right now because I wasn't after I was doing the edit. But I think it's all really important conversations. I realize it's just we are not having. Exactly. If you are feeling the feels, drink a glass of water, go for a walk, do something to ease your emotional system. <laughs> and and talk to the people who can make changes. Yes. Talk to whoever you can make changes to create better prison reform. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. This is coming out on the 12th of September. So I will have ex- be experiencing TIFF, which I'm super excited about. I have yet to even look at what's happening, but I have an industry pass thanks to the wonderful folks at Respectability. Um, they really want to uh, give us opportunities to go to major festivals such as um, TIFF. And so I'm just... Thank you for the pass. And also, I'm just excited to go. Um, I've gone as press before so that I could go, like so mm-hmm. I could afford to go. Uh, but it puts a lot of work and extra pressure on you. And I'm really excited to just go and uh, experience some films, which I love to do. That sounds like awesome. It'll also be right after Heather's birthday. So happy birthday, Heather. Um, Thanks. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> and if you are going to attend TIFF this year or you are there right now, go check out Hey Victor. It's a film that I cut. So give it a watch. Yep. Canadian film. Canadian film. And uh, shot in Alberta. Yay. Go Canada. So I have been working in an office out of my house for at this time when this podcast comes out, uh, two months. And it's been glorious. Um, if you observe our reels, you'll notice some of them coming out will be in a different background because I'm in my new office space. They have a podcast studio. Anyway, it's very exciting. I didn't realize how much small interruptions I was receiving in my day-to-day like working from home just because like I have dogs and and I would like, oh, I'll just go do the laundry. Like there's always things that were kind of like pulling me away from work. And I was talking with my therapist and they were like, that's actually quite, um, for somebody who has generalized anxiety disorder, that can be really deregulating because then you're stopping and starting. And and they were like, with anybody, that's hard on your mental health and you're just levels of like focusing and whatnot. So they were like, yeah, this could be really beneficial for you to go have a space outside your house. And so I did. And they were right. It's wonderful. (laughs) But now my new problem is that I have to remind myself to like get out of my chair because nobody's interrupting me that I'm like in this mode of like super focus when I'm working. So I'm getting a lot of editing done, but I do need to like be mindful of my body. Yes. A reminder to those that of the time timer or any timer you'd like, you can set it for up to an hour and then it goes off and then you have to stand and stretch and walk around for five minutes and then you sit back down and set your timer again. Do I do that all the time? I do not, but it's very useful. And my therapist recommended me do that. A time timer, like you just have a timer that you set, or is it something that like stops you from using your computer? Oh, no, no, sorry. A time timer, you can look these up on, I mean, whatever evil source of <laughs> corporate Amazonness you want or wherever. Um, it is a, a time timer shows you the actual time that's passing. So it's very useful for people with ADHD who have time blindness mm. so that you can actually see um, visually the time yeah. so worth okay. it versus a timer that just counts down seconds that, and you don't see um, the visual representation of time. So these are ones people I think I've seen where you buy like it's like yeah, it's a, a little it's a clock kind of thing you mm-hmm. stick at your desk. Yeah. And it has a color. So you'll see the color bar moving. Oh, cool. Um, and it's just a way of going looking at time. So you don't have to have that, but I find it useful because I look up, I'm like, oh, so much time has passed because yeah. you can see visually that time has passed by the amount of color that's still left mm-hmm. on, the, okay. on the timer. That might be something I should look into because yeah. Yeah. You can do any timer, but I like it. And it's also colorful. So yeah. Who doesn't like color? That's the, exactly. actually, that's one of the most fun parts of this office is I'm actually sharing the space with my dear friend, Dallas, who was on the podcast once, um, who is like a visual Oh, she makes she creates beautiful images with her camera, but also she just has great style. And so our little office space is like so cozy and we have a lot of pink. And it just I walk in there and I'm like, ah, it's so pretty. So Yep. Creating environments that are best for your brain. It's the best. So yay. Amazing (laughs) office. (laughs) Well, so much to celebrate. Tiff, birthdays, new offices. And with that, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. 
Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and remixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on all social platforms at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye! Bye. Brains are awesome!